the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. Where it remains Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Dave Congleton. In about an hour, Dr. James Papp talks about the Chinatown District in San Luis Obispo on Monday. We've got Jeff Oslin on Tuesday, former State Assembly member Jordan Cunningham. Uh, We're busy. This hour, it has been a while since we have talked about Ukraine. But tomorrow is the second anniversary of the Russian invasion. And I'm going to assert at the beginning here that I would say two years ago, by and large, this country, we were united, Republican, Democrat, we wanted to defend Ukraine. Two years later, I'm not sure that same momentum is there. Something has changed. A lot to talk about. Always good to be in conversation with Professor James Armstead, regular contributor, good friend of this broadcast, always available as he is now. Professor, good afternoon. Dr. Dave, how are you, sir? We're good, sir. Thank you, as always, for contributing to this broadcast. I guess I would start by asking you to respond to my opening comment. Something seems to have changed in this country over the last two years. We're now at a point where a lot of Republicans in Congress don't want to fund Ukraine anymore. What has happened and why is it happening? Let's start with that. Well, I think what you're seeing is the results of two things. The first, I would argue, there is a general war weariness. The, um, I think it's H.L. Mencken who said uh, no one has ever lost money by underestimating the intelligence of the public, the voting public, back in 1928 or 29. Yeah. And when an issue goes for a long time, people have a hard time continuing to focus on it. We've got a short memory about a lot of things. We're excited. We want to do something. We get involved. And there's just war weariness. You know, when is this going to stop? How much money? How much time? You know, what's going to happen? So I think we're seeing some of that. And and that's across the board, the, the left and right. We're, we're seeing that, and we're hearing some arguments about when is this going to be settled. We need to get to the table uh, and have a peaceful settlement of this. The other thing you're seeing, and I think uh, particularly when we look at what goes on with the debate in Congress, with the arguments about uh, the amount of money that's been sent to Ukraine and what that means, and most of the money that has been focused on the Ukraine actually has been focused on our own economy that we are building weapons. That's Americans in Lima, Ohio, who build tanks and repair tanks, that they are working, and people who build shells. And so it's American jobs uh, that's a part, a, a big part of this. And we hear about, all oh, this money is being spent and it's not going anywhere. But this entire issue has gotten wrapped up in our domestic politics. We are in the middle of a presidential year. Uh, we are, <coughs> we've got people running for office. And where you come down on the war 
rather than being a moral question that uh, Ukraine is attacked, or a legal question that this is aggressive war, one of the uh, the four war crimes that we recognize. Uh, it's now which president are you for, and how does that president feel about the war right now? And we're seeing that in Congress. Trump is not uh, is not uh, for supporting the Ukraine, and uh, he's gone to his minions uh, on the Hill and essentially taken the fight out of them. Which leads to the next question. Where are we right now with Congress and the funding debate? We know, for example, that Senate uh, leader, Republican leader Mitch McConnell is still in favor of supporting Ukraine. Uh, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson doesn't want to give them anything. Well, there the Senate has put together a special uh, funding amendment, and uh, because remember we haven't passed the budget, so we've got that problem. So we're working on a continuing resolution. So everything has to be a special amendment in terms of where we're going. So uh, a special amendment was put together for humanitarian aid in Gaza for the Israelis and for the Ukraine by the Senate. The House has not responded. They don't have their own version of the bill, nor have they said they're going to uh, to deal with responding to the Senate bill, other than that it's dead on the table until they get some action on the border. That was offered by the president. All of the things that were asked for in the last two years uh, by the Republicans were offered in a joint bill. The Democrats in the in the House and the Senate uh, have looked at it and said, okay, they'd go along with it. Not liking it, the Republicans in the Senate were willing to make a deal on the, the basis of what was being offered with the uh, with the border and the Republicans in the House have turned it down flatly after Donald Trump uh, made it clear he did not want a special amendment, a border bill, because that would give Biden a possible political victory that could not be used as a campaign issue. So what happens, in your estimation, Professor Armstead, what happens in Ukraine to Ukraine if the U.S. is not able to deliver financial aid as promised? Well, we're in the third phase of the war. There's the invasion, the counteroffensive, and now we're in what I call the defense in depth by the Russians. So that Ukraine is 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 pushing against the Russian invaders. Eighteen percent of Ukrainian territory is being held by an entrenched Russian army, and we're pushing against that. Very much like World War One, the trench warfare that's going up a long front uh, over 700, uh, 800 kilometers from northern, northeastern Ukraine all the way down to Crimea. And we are fighting that. It takes lots of infantry. It takes lots of artillery, uh, missile defense, because the Ukraine does not have a huge air force. And, of course, it has almost no navy. So the ammunition shortage has slowed down the counteroffensive that, that was relatively successful uh, last year. Uh, they, the Ukrainians were taking back territory. They were steadily pushing the Russians back. They've got them across the Dnieper River, uh, down in Zaporizhia, uh, and getting ready to go after Crimea. That that was being being set up. With the slowdown in ammunition, that push 
has slowed down considerably. I won't say it stopped. It has slowed down considerably. We've had a change of commanders. The commander-in-chief was uh, was replaced uh, about a month ago, and the new commander, who was the uh, uh, Oscar, who was the commander at Bakhmud, uh, who really fought toe-to-toe in a very hard, a very violent defense of, of Bakhmut uh, before pulling back. Uh, he's chosen not to do that recently, and Akhavat, he's backed away from uh, from that city. Uh, so the, the, the slugfest is very difficult when you're, when you're running short of ammunition and uh, you're running short of soldiers. It's getting replacements is ever more difficult after after two years and more than 75,000 killed on the Ukrainian side, so, 120,000 or so wounded. Can any of our NATO allies step in and make up for the gap in ammunition? Well, that's going on right now. There, there, there's uh, talk uh, among the uh, the Germans and the Brits in supporting the. Uh, it's a one five five howitzer ammunition. That's the principal round that's being used day to day on the battlefield at the FEMA, the forward edge of the battle area, and that's what's running short. And uh, we we are increasing our production uh, so that we are ready when that's approved. But but more money to you. Ukraine for that hasn't been uh, awarded yet. The Brits and the Germans are trying to make up for that. But there are other things that are necessary that we've been getting tanks, uh, leopards from the uh, leopards from the Germans, the Challenger from the uh, the Brits, uh, and uh, two battalions of M1A1 Abrams tanks from us. And that was hopefully going to be supported uh, this winter by a, uh, a, a, the F-16 fighter aircraft. Uh, it's an upgraded version of the old F-16, and th- that hasn't happened yet. We're their Ukrainian pilots are being trained uh, to fly them uh, in anticipation of their deployment, but uh, we're still waiting for that to happen. All right, we're in conversation, with Professor James Armstead, as we mark the eve of the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and shifting American sentiment on that issue. When we come back, we'll ask uh, the professor to react to the news today that the U.S. is imposing 500 new sanctions on President Putin, and if it means anything. Your phone call still to come. All that straight ahead on today's edition of the Dave Congleton Show. We are back in our conversation with Professor James Armstead as we mark the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Your phone calls and questions still to come. But, Jim, as I continue with you, as I uh, teased before the break, the news today is that the Biden administration has imposed 500 new sanctions uh, against uh, the Russians. Give our listeners the background on this, please. Why are we imposing these sanctions? Well, the... There's certainly been discussion along the last two years that the sanctions did not go far enough. There were holes. The Russians were able to sell through intermediaries, still sell oil and gas and other things. But the the death of, uh, of Alexei Navalny last week uh, in prison uh, and was just so horrendous that uh, this is the only viable candidate that uh, 
that Putin has faced in quite some time. And the trumped-up charges against him, the poisoning, uh, the, the nerve poisoning, the time he spent in Germany, um, in, in a clinic. Uh, and he wasn't completely recovered. His health certainly was delicate. Uh, but he's been charged with not only the initial offense, but charged with additional crimes of a very dubious nature while he's been in jail and his sentence uh, extended i guess we started with 10 years or so and it was then up to 40 or 50 years uh for uh, you know crimes against the uh, the russian state uh which essentially is he disagrees with putin politically mm-hmm. so we really need to stress the attack against democracy with the uh, with the death of Tavoli. I mean, and, uh, and this has been our response. The day before, the we're shocked. Yeah, the day before he died, he quote unquote died. He was seen on a, a videotape appearing in a courtroom, and he appeared to be totally healthy, in good spirits. He was laughing with the judge, yes. and then all of a sudden, he's dead. It's very suspicious. It's very suspicious. So, and of course, the, okay. uh, the, the as I said, the charges against them, the, these trumped-up charges, uh, didn't seem to have any particular value other than silencing the opposition to first to Putin and then, of course, to the war, which uh, he was the leader, uh, and beginning to coalesce some support. Uh, you know, we, we are talking about a state where... Russia, the central Russian government controls access to information. There is not a free press in any way that we would think of it. Uh, most of the news, particularly when you get into uh, the Asiatic Russia, most of the news is by television, uh, which is completely run by the state the uh, media concerns, and even the print media in Western Russia uh, has become less and less open to outside influence. A number of outside uh, press uh, people have been expelled from the country in the last two years. The um, We have to remember that Russia has a more than a million people in the security apparatus, in the military apparatus, but they're also... Um, about a million policemen. So almost as many policemen as you have in a wartime army. Hmm. And they've been busy suppressing uh, any demonstrations against the war, uh, any demonstrations against Putin's policies other than the war. There are other policies that people are are protesting and and concerned about. The openness of the election, for example, and the the allowing people to run against him. Hmm. If you run against Putin, you're charged with a crime. It's pretty simple. Uh, and uh, and if you're successful and you're getting some traction, uh, you disappear. You fall out of a window. Uh, you suddenly get sick. You're poisoned. Hmm. Things happen to you. And this is just the latest example. Uh, and of course, this one's more poignant because here we had a, a very articulate spokesman for Russian democracy who's been silenced. Well, so we have all these sanctions now. The two-part question up next. Uh, part one is, what will be the cumulative impact of these sanctions? Realistically, will they have any weight? And number two, if they if they will have weight, why didn't Biden do it sooner? Well, I think that you've got, uh, I think, two issues that we're dealing with here. Sanctions are only useful 
when you can get general support of them. If we do the sanctions ourselves, you know, our, our European allies and other countries are not interested in a sanctions regime, then you just find another way of selling things. So sanctions are only useful if they're generally applied. And Navalny's death has made it clear, I think, to a number of states out there that this isn't just about a disagreement between the Ukraine and Russia, or even NATO, the Western nations and Russia. This is really Russian aggression and Russian dictatorial policies, including killing its own people directly as well as indirectly, the cannon fodder being used to go off more than, as I said when we started, uh, more than 300,000, 315,000 is the, uh, the death toll that we have of Russian soldiers since the uh, offensive started uh, in February of 2022. So Russia has had a total disregard for the number of its own people that were killed. And with Navalny, with the challenge toward Putin, striking back directly like this makes it very clear that this is a dictatorship that should be resisted by the rest of the world. We haven't had that kind of general support. So that's that's number one. Number two, uh, you know, how effective is it going to be in terms of addressing the war and what's going on? Well, if you think Russia's got 150 million, 147 million people, its population, Russia is the size, the economy is roughly the size of Italy, with, with less than a third of that for a population. And we refer to Italy as one of the pigs. Uh, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Ireland, the, the lagging economies in Europe. So we're not talking about Russia being the equivalent of one of the more dynamic economies in Europe, even though the countries are smaller, but it's the equivalent of one of the weaker economies in Europe. If, in fact, you can strike at the heart of their economy, which is essentially an export economy, the export oil, gas, uh, and a number of, uh, of other industrial products, if the sale of those can be limited and they can't buy what they need to continue to make, uh, to keep their arms industry vibrant, then you are going to slow down their ability to wage war. They're already having trouble. They've had a, a second mobilization. About uh, about a year ago, after their casualty figures were so high in the counteroffensive, and if you slow down the number of men they've got, and the Ukrainians are doing a good job of that in the battlefield, and we in the West, with our economic imp- implementations, can slow down what they're able to produce and buy and be as a vibrant economy, then the cumulative effect is going to be a serious call for a serious curtailment of their ability to make war. So now, is that instantaneous? No. All right, not instantaneous. At the thirty second at the thirty second mark, is this sanctions from the US or is this from NATO? Well the sanctions right now are from us. But um, those are done in consultation with our allies. And as I said earlier, it's not going to be effective unless you've got general agreement. So the president is moving ahead because he feels he's got the agreement 
or he's very likely to get it uh, amongst our allies and, and friends. Our general agreement is that we will now go to California Headline News and ABC Radio News. Craig is standing by to update us with time saver traffic and weather together. We'll continue our conversation with a good professor and invite your thoughts as well. All that straight ahead on the Friday edition of the Dave Congleton Show. As we continue, Professor James Armstead marking the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you want in on the conversation, join us, 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Jim, as we're back with you on the Stolberg text line, listener writes, Former President Clinton has expressed remorse over his role in negotiating a 94 deal that resulted in Ukraine giving up its nuclear arsenal, suggesting that Russia never would have invaded its smaller neighbor if it still had nukes. Is our listener right? I think there's something to that. The Budapest Memorandum is what he's talking about, and that was a guarantee of Ukrainian political independence by the United States, by Germany, by the United Kingdom, and by Russia. And the payment for that from the Ukrainians was that they give up their nuclear weapons. And uh, there was also some financial aid and some other incentive, but they gave up their nuclear weapons. It would have been very difficult for the Russian army to have invaded if there was a threat of nuclear weapons, a significant threat uh, from the uh, from Ukrainian sources. So I'm sure Ukraine now, the uh, members of the uh, Defense Committee in their parliament are saying, as they wring their hands, if we kept the weapons and we hadn't bought into the, the Budapest Memorandum, maybe we would not be in this fix. Could it be revoked? Well, certainly, except the, the weapons are gone. You know, how do you get the weapons back? They were mostly given to, to the Russians. Yeah. All right. Second text on the Stolberg line. Listener is perplexed where you're getting your facts from on the Russian economy. This listener claims that Russia is in fifth place in the world's economy. They surpassed Germany, and they're on their way to passing Japan. Okay, Russia is actually in the eighth place in the world's economy. They are uh, 2.19 trillion. Uh, The fifth largest economy in the world is California. We are at 3.89 trillion. 805-543-8830, 800-549-5832. If you want in this conversation. So two years later, Professor, what kind of situation is Ukraine in? We've talked about the shortage of ammunition, but momentum seems to have shifted, at least according to the mainstream media, more to Putin. What's your reaction? Well, I think you've got a temporary lull on the battlefield that the the emphasis on the counteroffensive that we talked about last spring and and we got to see some of in the summer perhaps not as large as as we would like to have seen uh that has slowed down a bit Akramovit, the uh the city recently given uh Uh, where the Ukrainian forces withdrew, uh, shows a new focus on their fighting. It's more of a war of maneuver in certain areas where they're not able to sustain either the people that are needed to hold particular parts of the field or they don't have the uh, the weapons to hold that ground so we are seeing some uh, retrenchment on the part of the on the part of the Ukrainians and most of that is a shortage of ammunition 
if uh, they, they still have the will to fight, they are still in the fight. Uh, the Ukrainians are getting ready to take back Crimea. Their forces are, are, are set up in a way that gets them ready for a, an advance onto the peninsula, which, of course, would push the, uh, the headquarters, ultimately, of the Black Sea Fleet uh, out. Uh, and, and they've done well in that regard. And in the last two years, we've talked a lot about the, the way the war is being fought and, and the back and forth, what's going on, the invasion, the counteroffensive, and so forth. We have not talked very much about the Navy. And, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is the Ukraine doesn't really have a Navy. They've got a coastal defense force, some small patrol boats, but uh, 22 uh, major combatants in the uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet have been sunk, including two of the flagships. Uh, so the uh, the admiral who commands in the Black Sea, you know, twice the, uh, the flagship has been shot out from under him. And the, the Russians have been, I won't say fought to a standstill, but there is certainly parity with the Ukrainians using land-based weapons, drones, uh, anti-ship missiles to go after the Black Sea Fleet. And they are now able to, I think they're able to say reasonably well that the threat of an amphibious assault on southern Ukraine is probably, uh, it's probably pretty well been stymied. Right, I don't think that's something that the Ukrainians have to worry about. Immediately. Let's go to the phones. We got Lance in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Lance. Dave, how you doing? Uh, Dr. Armstead, always, always love when you're on. You always have such good, insightful info. Um, one of the things, Thank you. and I'm trying to remember, the, the back in September when we were kind of talking about funding Ukraine then, and about a month ago, CNN had on a general, I'm, I'm assuming retired, and I can't remember his name. If you said it, I'd go, that's him. One of the things that he kept trying to hammer home is it wouldn't matter if we gave the you know the Ukrainians the money to buy ammunition. We cannot, and Europe cannot produce it fast enough. They're they're wanting to fire ten thousand shells a day, and we can't even come close to producing that much. Both sides are using ammunition at rates no one predicted. And I suspect that was General Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. That was it, former Seventh Army Commander. He's uh, he's interviewed uh, quite often, and he's certainly an expert on on what's going on uh, in the field. But no one anticipated this this kind of use of uh, of artillery uh, and missiles. You know, the, the Ukraine doesn't have a large air force. It's defended. We have a relatively low population uh, that's being exposed to uh, these deadly missiles coming in because they're being shot down, and we're keeping the Russian air force away. But you know, we're talking about missiles that are a million dollars a piece uh, when you use Iron Dome. So how long can you keep that up? Yeah. Lance, what else? Well, and the other thing is, have we given Ukraine everything that they've asked for? And if, and if not, no. Uh, and, and see, to me, I don't care who, you, who you're blaming for, for what's going on. If we don't give them what they want, it's, it's on all of us. Professor. Absolutely. I'm in total agreement with you. All right. Lance, thanks for checking in. 805-543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, Professor, you better put your uh, your game face on because we've got our most challenging critic calling in. Here's my brother Bruce on KVEC. Hey, Bruce. 
David, why are you saying that? I actually agree with your professor here. I'm just making I, sure. Yeah, no. Your I callers are very bright people, Dave. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I, I uh, get my military stuff from uh, General Jack Keane, and he's been saying all along that we have not given the Ukrainians what they need to win this war. We give them just enough to keep the Russians at bay and no more. And if we don't change that position... They're not going to win. That was my first question. Comment. The second comment is, I think the the uh, House will go along with the Senate and provide funding for Ukraine if they give us a border closing bill and not an immigration bill. They've proposed putting HR two on there, and then this would go through the House. So I think that's the solution, and I heartily endorse closing the border giving the money to the Ukrainians and the weapons. Professor. Well, as to the the first comment about the, about Jack Keane, uh, I don't agree with him on a lot of things, but I will say this about that. I think our our strategy now, not the Ukrainians, our strategy has been a serious strategy of making sure the Ukrainians don't lose the war against the Russians. That's very different from a strategy focused on victory. The mathematics of victory are that you need superior firepower, you need a better trained military, you need the ability to maneuver, and you need a combined arms that includes first-class aircraft that are able to give you air, at least air parity, if not air dominance, so that you can succeed on the ground. We have not done that. That has not been provided. Right, so we are helping them defend, but not enough to win. What about and the win second, decisively. What about the second, the second part? item? The uh, p- political predictions are always difficult. I am not sure. Close, closing the border has not been something the United States has seriously discussed as a policy for, I don't know, 120 years, you know, the 1880s. We were, uh, we, we, that's the sort of thing that we did. That has not been the policy of the United States uh, for a very long time. If that's what it takes, it isn't something that has been researched and discussed and and thought over in the uh, committee structure in the House. Uh, if that's you know we, we we keep moving the ball, so you know let let's get the uh, a larger border patrol. Let's get more money uh, to review the asylum uh, cases. And you know it isn't the border. We're, we're focused on the border and what goes on. We think there's something like. 10 to 12 million illegal immigrants inside of the country. Most of those people did not come through the border. They had suits on. They came in airplanes. They got a six-month visa. They come into the, the, the country. They can fit into the economy. They bring money. They disappear. Right. Let's, let's That's get back where Bruce. most of these immigrants are coming from. That's let's get not back. just the border. Let's get back now, the to border Bruce. is a problem, and we haven't dealt with it successfully. Right. But there's, it's much more sophisticated and complicated than just closing the border. Let's get back to Bruce. Bruce, what else from you? So I would just say with regard to closing the border, the professor is right. We need more dialogue, discussion, and analyzing it. But while all that's going on, you could immediately seal that border and stop these thousands and thousands of people coming across every day. I, I watch it on TV here in California. San Diego is getting buried 
with new immigrants coming across, and these are not guys in suits or educated people. They're yeah, but they're refugees. Yeah, but Bruce, you, that you, needs you, to stop immediately. Yeah, but Bruce, you take Jim's point that a lot of these people here are illegally are actually just flying in and overstaying their welcome. Yeah, I, I've heard that also, and that, that could me stop. But I'm more concerned about the ones coming across the border right now every day by the thousands. That could be stopped immediately while we go through and figure out what a correct immigration policy is. All right. That's different than a closing the border policy. I'm glad you called, Bruce. Always good to hear from you. Appreciate it very much. Let me get to Gary and Pismo. Hey, Gary. Hey, Dave. Hi, Gary. Um, I, I, I've given up on the house. Uh, and so what I'm hoping or wondering um, if the doctor can talk about the possibility of getting all the frozen billions, the 300-plus billion that's frozen by uh, the EU and the United States. And yeah. uh, from what I understand, the European EU has most of the money. Can we yeah. get that $300 billion and get it to the Ukrainian ASAP? That's a good question. We'll talk about that. i got a bad connection with you, Gary, but thanks for asking the question. We hear a lot about that, Jim. Billions of dollars that we have frozen that belong to the Russians. Why don't we just take the money? Well, that's a great argument. And I think we should start going after that money more aggressively, and it should be turned over to the Ukrainians. Now, here's the problem. There are procedures for doing, legal procedures for doing that, and you want to follow those procedures because, remember, the banking financial structure of the world, which is rule-based, has to continue to be rule-based because our survival and dependence upon the structure is dependent upon it working and working well. So you can't just say, well, we'll dismiss it, we won't worry about the rules, and we'll just take the money. It, we have to go through the procedures. All right, we got Scott in San Luis. Hi, Scott. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dr. Armstead. Hi, Scott. Uh, hi, Scott. Well, I have some comments, and um, this is interesting because um, during the conflict, um, uh, there's a Department of Congress. It's called the uh, it's called the U.S. Congress Research Records, and they came out with a report about U.S. military interventions um, since 1970. Uh, 19, I'm sorry, 1798 to 2022. There were 469 military interventions, um, but um, from 1991 to uh, 2022, the United States had 251 military interventions. So after the Cold War was over, um, the United States did not have balance because the Soviet Union was gone and there was only one superpower. So basically, um, what this report is telling us is that the United States was using the planet as its playground. Because they also said in this report that the Russian military interventions was less than 20. So, so when we call Russia an aggressor, uh, we got to look at ourselves. Well, let's let the professor comment on that. Interesting point, professor. Well, I, I would uh, look. Let's start out and look at the uh, and the numbers of where interventions were, and you know what what was going on. Now, we don't have any colonies anywhere in the world. We don't have any colonies. Places that we intervene, we are asked to come in. 
we don't go if there's not a status of forces agreement, there's not a treaty agreement that brings us there. We were attacked at 9-11, and we responded uh, with a military intervention going in Afghanistan, going after the Taliban uh, who were shielding the folks who had attacked us. In 1991, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, went after uh, Saddam Hussein, who had invaded a neighboring state that was under U.N. sanction. There was a U.N. resolution, and it was a joint U.N. operation. It wasn't the United States by itself. Uh, and, um, and, of course, now we've got uh, a Russian invasion of its neighbor that put over 300,000 people inside of of the Ukraine. So that that's the largest military operation since the Second World War. It was an invasion violating the laws of war, including waging aggressive war. We have not been charged with that anywhere because we are intervening where there is a treaty where we've been invited, uh, and we're enforcing UN regulations as opposed to violating them. So let's get back to Scott. Scott, what's okay, your second well, point? You know what? When we look at sanctions, we place 500 today. We've never had sanctions against us, but Russia right now has over 19,000 sanctions, okay? Um, they are dealing with 60 countries that are against them. We've, we've never invaded a country and had the same against us. We've we've always had people on our side, but for some reason it's it's with Russia it's completely the opposite way around. So I what? Want to mention, but hang on a second, Scott. So well, what's your point? Where what 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 conclusion do we draw from this? Because we don't learn from sanctions. We we don't learn. I mean that's how we got involved. That's how we got in the war with uh, uh, because um, we sanctioned Japan, and we 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 became uh, uh, we became well we we well Japan we 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 went to World War Two. But the point is, is that sanctions don't get us anywhere. And the, the the interview with Putin said, you know, you're financially hurting yourselves, and we are hurting ourselves because since the war happened, two years we've had acceleration of inflation, just like the end of the, uh, of uh, World War II with Germany. We are like in the same position with Germany when it comes to inflation. But can I mention Finland Wait, and Sweden? Quickly, because that's really important. Quickly, quickly. Okay. Um, we're, we, so basically, the, the, there is a whistleblower that just came out um, back in November in Turkey uh, that the United States secretly gave the Turkish government $11 billion for a yes vote in, uh, for Finland. And when I look at the records of Finland, Finland has not had any conflict with Russia since 1940. That's 84, that's 84 years ago. Yeah. And Sweden is 234 years ago. And we want to put them in the NATO alliance when there is no conflict between these countries. Right. We are scaring tacking these countries to put them in an alliance. They don't need to be in the alliance. i got to let you go, Scott. you got a lot there on the table. Appreciate the call, as always. Pick what you want to respond to, Professor. Well, I'd like to respond to the, the, the last item as, as to Finland. Now, Finland's a nation with just, uh, just about five million, five million people. And as, as, as he said, the, um, the last conflict with Finland was in 1940. 
the, we call it the Winter War, where the Soviet Union offered Finland an exchange of territory. They wanted more uh, of the area around the Balkans because Stalin was thinking that if he went to war against his ally, Germany, he was allied with Germany at the time, he would need a stronger defense of the, the Balkan coastline uh, and across the Baltic Sea. So he needed some land from Finland uh, that was prominent and, and useful for a strategic point of view there. So that war was fought. Since then, no conflict, as was pointed out, no direct conflict. We have a word in political science and in international relations called Finlandization, which essentially means you are, are snuggled up against the neighbor so big and so powerful that everything you do has to be viewed in terms of how will that neighbor feel about what you're doing. Uh, I would point out, uh, jokingly, somewhat, but, but, but with some seriousness, that Mexico, in many ways, probably looks at us the same way. I believe it was uh, President Wilson uh, who had, uh, he had President Obregon uh, in a hotel room in, uh, in New York for oh, a year or so uh, while he was exiled from his own country. And Obregon, uh, during the First World War, and Obregon responded to having to deal with the United States states uh, with a prayer. Poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. Hmm. So the Finlandization of, of, uh, of, of the world with the states around some of the former Soviet uh, Union states relating to Russia is such that I don't think we can say there's no conflict we gotta go. uh, just because there's not a direct invasion. All right, uh, Dr. James Armstead, we'll have a final thought as we continue. I'm Dave Congleton where Professor Armstead gets 30 seconds for a final thought, sir. Well, 30 seconds can be a very short time, but I think it would behoove us to, to look at the, the morass of things that are going on. And those who don't follow international relations and uh, foreign affairs full-time may look at this and think, there's so much happening, how do I think about this? Well, here's something you need to look at. The end of World War II, we settled the world by having a peace that created the United Nations and other institutions so that there would be rules that nations had to live by. We got to go. Thank you, Professor. News, traffic, weather, back on the other side with Dr. Papp. Stick around. News Talk. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.